Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you uh, up to date with the legal and financial news that matters to you. I'm Claire Patrika Riding and I'm the Head of Planning and Environmental Law at Erwin Mitchell. And I'll be your host today as we discuss achieving net zero by 2050 and what it means for the manufacturing sector. To do so, I'm delighted to be joined by three people who all contribute to this process. Um, We have Alistair Morris, who's the Chief Commercial Officer at Powerstar, John Gibbons, who's the Professor of Carbon Capture and Storage at the University of Sheffield, plus Director of the UK CCS Research Centre, and Ben Lewis, who is the Director and the National Lead of Infrastructure and Energy at Balsam Wilmore. So welcome, everybody. Um, Do you all want to say hello and then just give a brief introduction to yourself so our listeners can appreciate where you are coming from? Alistair, do you want to go first? Sure. So um, I'm Chief Commercial Officer at Powerstar. Powerstar's uh, an SME based in Sheffield, designs and manufactures a range of hardware and software that, that help commercial and industrial customers of all sorts manage their energy, reduce their energy consumption, and increasingly make it as green as possible. So variety of electronics, battery storage systems, um, but really power control software um, to help users um, take control of their own their own energy usage. Great. Thank you, Alistair. And John? I work on carbon capture and storage at the University of Sheffield. Uh, I also lead a national virtual research centre on carbon capture and storage. Uh, carbon capture and storage is is what it says. It's uh, capturing carbon dioxide from processes, from the manufacture of carbon-free vectors like hydrogen and electricity, and capturing carbon dioxide from the air itself, which I think we'll talk about a bit more later in the discussion. Sounds interesting. And Ben? Yeah, thanks, Claire. Yeah, I lead the National Infrastructure Consenting Team at, at Barton Wilmore. Um, we're a independent, probably one of the largest independent planning and design consultancies in the UK. My team specialises in the consenting of the type of energy infrastructure we're going to talk about today. So um, renewables, small modular reactors, hydrogen, be that green or blue. And essentially, yeah, we're involved in projects throughout the UK, um, both at the nationally significant infrastructure scale, uh, developments of national significance in Wales and town and country planning applications. Great stuff. Thank you all. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be a really interesting uh, discussion that we've got, um, especially after the last couple of weeks under um, the discussions around net zero. So before uh, COP26, we had the publishing of the net zero strategy and the heating and building strategy. Um, and it's felt that there's a lot of pressure on manufacturers to achieve net zero by 2050, um, especially as manufacturing is a key sector um, that the government is uh, seeking um, some reassurance that they're going to reduce their emissions by 2050. But what does that, what does it really mean to be net zero? And today we're going to help understand carbon emissions and what alternative energy sources are available to manufacturers, both in terms of heating, but also energy generation and how this can help, especially in energy intensive processes and how this can help reduce your emissions um, to achieve net zero. Um, So would hydrogen on, off, shore wind, solar or any other source be Um, viable alternative to fossil fuels. And we've obviously heard Ben talk about nuclear um, as well. What does the new infrastructure need to look like to be able to have this or meet the energy generation that's needed from these renewable energy sources or other sources of energy generation? Is the grid at um, capacity 
could we have any surplus energy be stored? And we've got John Gibbons, obviously, uh, and Alistair uh, talking about that. So this podcast seeks to explore both the technological and regulatory challenges facing the sector to secure cleaner energy generation. So to start with the discussion, John, yes, talk to I, us I, about net zero and carbon emissions. Hmm. Yes, yeah, so I think it's very important to, to note the net in net zero, because what we're talking about is balancing anthropogenic you know, human additions of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere with removals. It doesn't, doesn't mean we're expecting to get to zero greenhouse gases. That's carbon dioxide and methane, oxides of nitrogen, CFCs. But we're going to balance those, the ones that we do get, with removals. Now, there's a lot of talk at COP about stopping the use of coal. I don't know why they didn't say stop the use of, of natural gas and oil as well, because they've all put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But anyway, that was what was said. Uh, not surprisingly, the countries that are more reliant on coal than the other forms of fossil fuel didn't go along with it. But very importantly, as well as talking about, in the end, phasing down the use of a fossil fuel coal, they also talked, added in, phasing down the unabated use of a fossil fuel. And that means using that fossil fuel, but not putting the CO2 in the atmosphere. And at the moment, we're talking about capturing essentially, being able to capture essentially all of the, the CO2, not just some fraction. What wasn't talked about so much, although it was talked about, I think, at, uh, at Paris, was the net, which is where sources of greenhouse gases and sinks, and that means mostly, I think, engineered sinks, not natural sinks, uh, balance out. So. It, it isn't really about energy. It's about CO2, fundamentally. The climate doesn't care about where people get their energy from. It does care a lot about greenhouse gases. Thank you uh, for that, John. Alistair, did you have anything that you might want to add to that? Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, as, as John says, that ach achieving net zero is very much about um, balancing um, the, the greenhouse gases that we're putting out. For manufacturers, um, it's it's a complex picture, really. Um, there's a lot of um, what we call um, scope one emissions, where manufacturers are actually burning fossil fuels themselves. They're directly generating um, greenhouse gases, and that those can be a really really big challenge to overcome. And it might be that manufacturers um, have to look to to net those to zero through capturing carbon, through offsetting, through through doing other things um, to, to balance out what they're doing. And um, as John mentioned, the energy picture, what we call the scope two emissions maybe, so um, typically the electricity that's being used, and still really important part of the picture, um, that nationally the um, electricity that we use um, is is not completely green. There are there are um, carbon emissions as a result of the electricity that we generate, but important to bear in mind both of those challenges. And um, then when we're talking about energy storage and supply then for both John and Alistair, what is the challenge there? I mean, I, I think it's it's interesting what John and Alistair are saying. I think that for me, there's a there's an issue in terms of this balance point as well, because I think that it, it comes from the point of it's offsetting more than anything else. And, and balance sometimes can be led to relate to sort of offsetting, which is, yeah, we'll carry on producing, but we'll find some way to deal with it, which is, which is not the answer. That is part of the answer, I will admit. But 
I think the answer is that, you know, we need to decarbonize as much as we possibly can. And then there are certain sectors of society, sort of the, an industry, the hard to decarbonize sectors as, they, as they're known that need to be focused on. And, and, and that's where things like carbon capture and, and storage come into the picture. I mean, I'm also, I'm sure John's the expert on this, but from a carbon capture perspective, I'm not sure that there are viable schemes in operation, certainly not in the UK at the moment. And there have been questions asked recently as to whether it is a viable solution going forward. I think from a, from an energy perspective, you know, we've got to look at the system as a whole. So you're looking at increased proliferation of renewables, but coupled with things like modular reactors to provide the baseload generation, as well as storage. Now that could be batteries, that could be pumped hydro. There's a range of options. Um, but I think I kind of it's going to show my age now, but I often think of the energy systems a bit like a graphic equalizer you used to get on your old hi-fi units when you were <laughs> when you were younger. And as one goes up, one goes down, um, and they kind of level out in the end. So I think I don't I think it's it's one of the things that's come out from things like the National Infrastructure Assessment, where they've said, look, you know, there is a target. This is where we need to go. But what the exact mix will look like when we get there is probably difficult to predict at the moment. So I think that, you know, we need to have a range of options um, and we need to, well, essentially, we know from COP26 um, and what's come out, you know, the, the phrase I think I read was that we're keeping 1.5 degrees alive, but it's on life support and it's got a very weak pulse. So very I think that stresses the urgency of the situation. Definitely. And John, what do you think about that then? Yes. Well, it, it, certainly the, the whole system is what matters. And also, by and large, trying to be cost effective, because despite what people say, it is going to cost money uh, to make this change. And you need to do it in the most effective way possible. And I wouldn't make too many assumptions about the way to do it. Apart from anything else, net zero basically is fundamentally different. And in fact, 1.5 degrees is even more than net zero. 1.5 degrees, if you look at the IPCC predictions of credible pathways, they all go net negative after 2050. You know, net zero is it, by 2050 is one thing. It's 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 net negative the day after, and that's terrible. That's a huge imposition, but that's what the IPCC is showing based on where we are now in the climate science, and that's that's even if we cut quite rapidly. So we're moving into a, a totally different territory, and I think we're conditioned by essentially the oil crisis problems. We're almost seeing another another oil crisis now in terms of cost rising. But we're conditioned by that where, where what we, you know, we had a philosophy that said, oh, replace fossil with non-fossil energy sources. And that's that'll help keep essentially fossil prices down. And then that sort of morphed into, well, do that and we'll cut CO2. And that was fine when we were after a 60% cut, we thought at the start of the century, then an 80% cut in the uh, in the Energy Act. But now we're at zero. And as I say, the reality is that we'll probably have to go negative. And we, we really are moving into a, a different territory. And I think the way you, you think about energy switching, other energy sources, even even uh, energy efficiency, it, it doesn't cut it when you need to get to net zero. And obviously, it doesn't cut it when you need to get net negative. It, it's an unfortunate situation, but it's you know, that it's the reality. So on the basis that um, we're obviously in for a challenge um, and that needs to have um, a variety of different sources, as, as we've all just been discussing, that needs to sort of be a whole system review. Alistair, um, what about energy storage and supply um, and what's the challenge there? And can you tell us a little bit about, a bit about what PowerStar are doing, this, uh, are doing in this area? 
Sure. So I, I come back to the specific topic about um, electricity, really, you know, in, in, in a sense and from a from an individual organization's point of view, if you can electrify everything that you do and have fully renewable electricity, then job job done. Of course, things are never quite as simple as that, but it's 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 a huge way along the journey and solving issues. Now, at a national level, that needs to happen. So uh, we we currently um, still burn a lot of natural gas to generate electricity in the UK. So the government's saying that we're going to um, get get rid of that and go go fully renewable electricity generation means that we will also need to store a lot of electricity because this this renewably generated electricity is going to be um, seasonal. We're going to have more of it at certain times of year than at other times of year, um, and it's also going to vary throughout. The day we, we're not going to have the same supply and demand relationship that we've previously had with our electricity. You can, you know, we can't just burn more fuel when we need more electricity. We're going to generate it when it's available, not when we need it. And so, storage is really going to be um, absolutely critical at a national level. And there are plans in place to put in lots of different types of storage: short term, medium term, long term. There's still a lot of innovation needed, a lot of development, huge amount of investment at a national level. And there's going to be this period of transition, without a doubt, um, while, while that happens. So for individual organizations, there's, there's kind of a couple of things to be aware of there. One is the instability in the electricity market and electricity supply during that transition. And we've already had a little taster of that um, this year, energy prices. Um, suddenly being very volatile. Yeah, I, I think that will become quite common during the energy transition, um, that that there's going to be so many changes to the national electrical infrastructure that volatility will become very common. And businesses will need to mitigate for that. They'll need to insulate themselves from the national picture. But even if you look beyond um, this transition having happened and imagine a world where we've got fully renewable electricity and lots of storage to um, to balance that out um, on a daily and, and, and um, seasonal basis, you can still imagine that our relationship with our electricity supply is going to be quite different. It's going to be more like we have with water at the moment. So water is a seasonal um, resource and we store it in reservoirs. And we try to have big enough reservoirs to supply us throughout the summer. But sometimes that balance isn't right and we end up with hosepipe bands. If that's happening to our electricity supply as well, it's easy for a business to, to imagine what an impact uh, a, a hosepipe band would be for its electricity supply. And there's no doubt that big industrial uh, electricity users will be called on to change their operations to help the national picture. Um, we, we've, we've already felt some of that this year, um, and we're in a very early stage of this transition. So That's what PowerStar tries to do is to help the individual organization mitigate from all of this happening. So providing some storage on their own site so that they have their own reservoir, managing those, um, those electricity flows around the site, getting the electricity from maybe their own generation now, you know, they can become their own little um, sources of um, electrical generation with, with wind or solar on their roofs and using that in an optimized way. So using it when 
it's 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 most required, using it most efficiently, storing it at the optimum time, buying it from the grid when um, when that makes sense, um, and and we really help sites to to take control of that, create their own micro grid on their site to really um, insulate themselves from the volatility of electrical um, pricing and um, quality. Okay, that's really helpful. Thank you. It's, it's really interesting topic. So moving on then, Ben, from what Alistair has just said, where we've got um, people trying to mitigate and manage their own energy supply and, and, and sort of the storage elements that that might bring, Obviously, you're involved in some of the largest um, energy generation schemes um, that um, is happening in the UK right now. So what do you see um, as, as sort of the trends that are coming out or, and how can you know, we have larger sort of projects that are going to be energy generating um, so that if, say, for example, what Alistair was saying earlier is that if we are going to have this volatility in the market, that large consumers, um, such as manufacturing, are not going to be the first to be called upon um, to reduce the energy when we've got peak demand um, by consumers, because that's not exactly vote winning, is it, to <laughs> cut the power supply to the to our homes? So how can so one how can large energy schemes? Um, help uh, mitigate um, and manage energy generation for all but how can um, individual manufacturers take on these challenges and I believe that you've been working on some uh, hydrogen projects um, and can you tell us about the significant challenges behind that as well so Couple of questions for you there, Ben. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Claire. Um, right, I was going to take those. I mean, I think there's a, there's a couple of points have been mentioned by John and Alistair, which was struck a chord, and and one of them being innovation, and the other one being investment, and that's they're both needed in spades um, across the piece. Um, I think from a from a large scale generation perspective, we you know we're making strides, we are making progress. Some would argue that it still takes too long to consent these projects, having been involved in the in the DCO regime for the last sort of nine or ten years. I can I can say that I'm not sure we can do them any quicker, and still account for the relevant um, environmental impact assessment work, the community engagement, um, and and getting everybody involved and making sure that you know the decisions that are taken do reflect the benefits and the impacts and and the planning balance is right. Um, I think what surprised me was a, a recent Cornwall Insight report pointed out how far short we are of what we need just to decarbonize the electricity system. I mean, and that's just that's just one part of it. You know, I'll come on to that in a minute, but it's energy, it's travel, it's freight. Um, and then the biggest challenge is influencing people's behavior, which John picked up on, and, and getting people to society to change its habits is is being recognized as one of the biggest challenges that we do face. But from a from an energy perspective, you know, the Common Insight predicted that we're going to need probably fifteen billion pounds a year of investment by 2030 in in the system, um, which is a staggering amount. Given that you know we're still a long way short, picking up on Hallister's point about batteries, it's estimated that there's you know we need 18 gigawatts of battery storage capacity in the UK by 2035, and we currently have 1.3 gigawatts. Um, so we've only got what 14 years to go, and we're still a long way short. Um, and that's just batteries. That doesn't include things such as pumped hydro and other sort of grid scale 
storage methods. I think it, it'll be interesting to see how it develops. I think that the larger schemes can definitely assist um, because I don't think you can do it at a local level. I think that the scale of the task ahead of us is too great. But then when you do look at it in, on an individual basis, there are a number of well, not so much incentives, but initiatives at the moment, the government's funding towards the hydrogen sector has been seen a massive sea change in sort of projects coming forward, keeping up with the technological advancements and innovations, both in, you know, solar and wind, but also in the hydrogen sector and batteries. You know, things are moving forward at a phenomenal pace. My 12-year-old my was asking me this morning, you know, well, it's all going to go wrong, isn't it, Dad? after COP26. And I said, well, no, because I have faith in your generation and human ingenuity to come up with a solution. And we are moving in the right direction and we will get there. But I think from a, an individual manufacturing point, it's quite interesting looking at the, the sort of food and drinks industry at the moment. Um, a client of ours is working with a Scottish whiskey distillery on using hydrogen for their industrial heating sources and and a, as a complete solution so i'm working on the the mago brewery hydrogen project at the moment which is it's budweiser um it's the largest brewery in the uk down in mago in south wales and they're looking at with a with a hydrogen partner developing their own solar and wind assets together with electrolyzers together with battery storage together with hydrogen storage with the ultimate aim being that the hydrogen will fuel their trucks on the road delivering beer to all the pubs we like to drink in, um, but also be used for for heat and things in the manufacturing process itself. They think it'll save about 15,000 tonnes of carbon CO2 per annum just from the HGV use. Um, it's a 20 megawatt facility. I've got a number of other clients that are looking at these in, in various industrial locations, typically around the UK. I think the, the team behind Pro, the Mago scheme have got plans for a 40 megawatt electrolyzer capacity up in Teesside heavy industrial areas where the hydrogen can be used locally um, rather than being pumped into the grid on, on a wider scale to actually save costs and provide i think what everybody's looking for is just is is security of supply just the supply itself and the security of that supply for the uk so we aren't beholden to somebody on in a faraway place turning turning the pipe off turning the tap off in terms of the power that comes to the uk so it i think yeah, at all scales, something can be done, whether that is just at sort of micro scale, individual manufacturers and industries um, looking at themselves. I think, you know, things like the steel making industry in the UK, whilst it's not as strong as it was, there's still pockets of it. And they face a major challenge as to how they can decarbonize steel. I mean, I remember talking when I was working on a power, a gas power station to go on a, um, a steel plant. And a number of my other solar clients and said, oh, can we have an introduction, please? Because we want to put 10 megawatts of solar nearby. And they looked at it and it just went, that's not even a drop in the ocean compared to the amount of power we have to use to power the furnace. So you need to look at other solutions. Well, I think that there's a, obviously the wider discussion about the Cumbrian coal mine, which obviously relates to the steel industry. Um, and the call that they wanted to come out of that. So it's really interesting to hear those discussions. I mean, it felt like we were talking about security of supply for a long time, um, um, or we've been talking about security of supply for a long time, but nothing really has ever developed into ensuring that that is met and, until now, where it feels like there's a well, one minute to midnight, and so we better get the uh, the dissertation written and in before before we uh, miss the deadline. Um, that's how it feels anyway, whereas if we'd have 
uh, sometimes it feels like we've missed the opportunity because we could have um, been 10 years ahead of where we were right now um, if we hadn't have cut the funding and um, cut the development and innovation at that time. So that leads me nicely on to, to John and the work that um, you've been doing um, both at the University of Sheffield, but also the UK CCS Research Centre. Um, and it's incredible to see the, the work that is coming out of both of those organisations. Um, so what do you see uh, the future, particularly for manufacturers? Um, is there anything um, that they could be doing um, or alternatively, is there any manufacturers that could turn their hands to some of the infrastructure that's required for carbon capture, say, for example. What are your thoughts on those? Yeah, so I think it's, there's a, a whole new infrastructure that needs to be put in to enable carbon capture and storage. It, basically, think of it as a, a sewage system for carbon dioxide. We, we just don't have a disposal system for it at the moment because there's not been a problem with the dumping it in the atmosphere but you know we're, we're on come dark side we're basically the situation we were when uh, people used to open a window say guardy loo and throw it in the street you know we've got to we've got to actually put in sanitation uh, this is a climate. really great analogy i love it well but it, no but <laughs> it is exactly so the same yeah. it's exactly the same you know, it was acceptable to put your co2 in the atmosphere for uh, ever since we invented fire uh, and it's not we've, we've reached the limit and we've got to put in the system. So for manufacturers, it will matter a lot what access they've got to the systems that are due to be put in. With you know, we've got four CCS clusters by 2030, two going quickly uh, on the east coast, Teesside and Humberside, uh, and Hynet on the northwest, and then two more planned uh, later, Scotland. South Wales, probably by shipping, and there'll probably be some other pipelines and as well. So it will matter whether industry is near those disposal routes. Uh, if they're not near, they can access by by rail or ship. And that's what's planned for South Wales in particular, shipping. Uh, and if they're not near somewhere where you can get rid of the CO2 if you capture it from your process, then they'll have to think of alternatives. And, and you know, we can't um, we can't miss the the imperative of, of net zero. So there, there will have to be some adjustment there. But no, there's a lot of flexibility. There's also actually quite a lot of scope for carbon dioxide removal from the air, either using biomass with carbon capture and storage, or as I say, pulling it directly out the air. That's expensive, but then actually getting rid of CO2 that you produce intermittently. So say, for example, you're talking about um, backing up an intermittent electricity supply. So you, you might be using fossil fuels 5% of the time. Well, capturing the CO2 directly, if you're using fossil fuels at that point, is very expensive anyway. But it's you're not doing it for very long. So from industry's point of view, totally new process for some of them, capturing carbon dioxide. Changes in the process as well, uh, using, using hydrogen and electricity. Uh, I think Probably not using so much biomass. I think biomass is better used centrally with carbon capture and storage. I think you get more bangs for your buck that way. Uh, but possibly some some of the places even looking at using fuels like ammonia. All of this is, is work that we're looking at in the uh, University of Sheffield at the Translational Energy Research Centre. We've got pilot plants uh, for a lot of this lot of this work and, and developing the technology. But you know, fundamentally, we've got to have a completely new additional infrastructure as well. That's the only way we'll make it work. And yes, it hasn't been done before, but then 
we haven't had net zero before. You know, even as I say, even 80% reduction is hugely different from net zero. It might might seem like it's just 80 to 100, but it's not. It's it's actually being able to emit, you know, 100 million tons a year or more from the country or having to emit absolutely nothing. Big, big difference. Thank you very much for that, John. Um, so in terms of how we can encourage, I use this word quite a lot, you know, how can we encourage people to um, change their habits um, and also change the way that they're, they're looking at energy generation and, and the, the whole system. And we've had some great analogies today from, you know, the water supply is very similar to this, where it's uh, seasonal, we store water, and then we have hosepipe bands when we need to um, uh, conserve water. And then obviously the story, the sewage system for carbon dioxide. So um, uh, two great analogies, but also um, two uh, systems that have uh, a lot of regulatory control so how do we manage um, building the infrastructure and providing the additional encouragement um, uh, for manufacturers or users um, to, to, to make the leap? Ben, coming to you um, uh, and based on your experience of uh, bringing forward nationally significant infrastructure projects in relation to um, renewable energy schemes, what are the regulatory systems or um a regulatory encouragement um, do you think is needed at the moment to be able to bring forward the fundamental change that we need? It's a big question, Claire. Um, per personally, I mean, I, I think the government intervention is needed, but I don't think it's needed on the development side um, at the moment. And, you know, we're inundated with developers wanting to develop solar and wind, um, you know, batteries as well. Um, pumped hydro is making a bit of a comeback, although pumped hydro, given the capital expenditure required to build one of them and the, the, the sort of payback period, they need a new funding, well, well, a tariff mechanism from the government. I think cap and floor has been suggested as one option for them. But I think from the, the biggest challenge for the industry at the minute from a renewable energy perspective is grid. It's, it's national grid and their completely reactive way of operating. I mean, we've got, we're involved in an offshore wind farm off the south coast um, and a number of wind farms in Wales. And when you're looking at, you know, grid connection offers that, that won't come to fruition for another 10 or 12 years. And when you're looking at the offshore wind ambitions of the government, particularly, the grid isn't there to deliver the 40 gigawatts they want by by 2030. Um, so it's, it's interesting to, you know, I think that's where the biggest challenge lies. I think that there's always been, I mean, it's not National Grid's fault. The way they've always operated is when people ask for a grid connection, they'll upgrade the grid to suit. But I think the grid was designed to push energy out to consumers. It wasn't designed for energy to come back in. And that that's causing some issues. But there's also the fact that, you know, there's talk of an offshore transmission main um, to connect all the offshore wind farms. That's in sort of developmental feasibility stages at the moment, but we've already got politicians in areas where wind farms are proposing, well, let's let's pause your wind farm application and wait until the off offshore transmission network's in place, and then you can get planning and then you can build it. Um, but, you know, we may be 10 years off an offshore transmission network, and I'm, I'm being optimistic on that on that front. So that is where the biggest challenge lies. It's 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 trying to get National Grid to move to a more of a proactive position than a reactive one and actually start looking ahead, working with the government and whether this is going to need 
a stick from the government rather than a carrot. I'm not sure, but they need to start putting the, the networks in and improving the grid to cope with what's coming from a development perspective in the future. Definitely, because we've seen quite a lot of carrots that are coming out from the budget announcements, both um, the autumn and spring budgets for research and development. So trying to stimulate that innovation. But as with all of these things, um, and as you just alluded to, Ben, that's, you know, research and development of, of products takes time, but also just the implementation of um, development for um, infrastructure. That's the infrastructure that's required is, you know, that's going to be um, quite a long period of time. So, John, do you what do you see as the key driver then? Is it a stick or a carrot? What do we need from central government? I think it is enabling infrastructure. Um, by whatever means, you know that that is something that government has to do. It's shared. It, you don't. I mean, in a sense, you, you just had the example. Wind farm developers can't really develop the grid. Somebody else has to do that. Supermarket distribution operators can't develop their own motorways. No, so somebody has to provide infrastructure. That's a traditional job for government to organise. Now, obviously, they will do it through various arrangements, effectively with the private sector. But they have to lead. They have to look forward, and then, in many cases as well, they have to take the risk that the uh, infrastructure is or isn't used, because you then get into a bigger sort of policy debate that you, you know you've got the infrastructure there, but is government essentially going to direct by carrots or sticks that people will use that infrastructure? So that they ultimately have to to, to take the bigger picture and i have to say i think the national infrastructure commission from what i can see of it is really taking this seriously now and, and thinking that they they do have a responsibility at this very very high strategic level to coordinate a lot of activities uh, and and i have to say that you know that's certainly certainly true in the area of ccs and and indeed including things like um the new technologies of carbon dioxide removal so there's there's a lot of things going on there uh, but I agree very much with with Ben. It's uh, it's very slow, and you know, in a sense, thank goodness it is because we live in a democracy where people do take care of of uh, environmental impacts. But it is it is frustrating, and it is a lot of hard work for people to get it through in time, nonetheless. Um, Alistair, I'm really interested to see how we could do it as, at a local level. So obviously, through PowerStar advising businesses, and how. Perhaps reporting um, um, around uh, emissions for individual businesses um, and how that might affect sort of people's outlook. I'm really keen for uh, you to perhaps give us some thoughts around that as well, because that's the different part of the regulatory regime is about reporting emissions and um, and things like that, isn't it? As well. Sure, sure. Uh, for me, a lot of this comes comes to a point of. Um, being globally competitive, so um, you know, you know, the pressures to um, achieve net zero are really starting to come down supply chains now. So from from the consumer, from the public will that this is something that's incredibly important. Manufacturers, vendors are are feeling the um, the market push to achieve that and pushing that down the supply chain. Um, but it's 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 really important to remember how global our supply chains are, and if um, there is a place in the world with an infrastructure that is well set up to deliver um, 
uh, let's call it net zero products, um, then they will have a market advantage. So if if we think about Britain wanting to be um, global Britain, then we really need that that infrastructure piece to support the private sector. So so there's a and 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 for me, it's neither carrot nor stick. Really, it's it's as much about clear leadership and direction. You know, I think I think um, British um, innovation and manufacturing is really um, really responsive and flexible. But we need to know what the rules are. Tell us tell us what the um, the parameters are. Tell us um, what our playing field looks like, and we will respond and adapt really really well. Um, create being innovative, creating solutions to to work with it. Um, but it's important that we know what those rules are going to be and 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 how and how we um, how we need to operate. You know, so if um, if we're going in one particular direction, if it's going to be hydrogen, if it's going to be um, you know moving things around with electric lorries, okay, great. But we need clear direction and leadership at a national level. And that then allows the individual manufacturer to um, decide what their solutions are going to be. I think the concerns at the moment are that that for individual companies, this requires investment. You know, as a business, we're going to have to spend money to um, achieve net zero. The fear is spending it on the wrong thing. I'm going to invest in a whole load of technology that's actually not not going to fit in with a national picture that's not going to make me competitive. Um, so, so we need a kind of a, a, a clearer leadership, I think, at this point in time to say, okay, this is how Britain's going to solve this problem um, at a national level. Um, and as individual organisations, that's that's how we need to respond. It's definitely a lot of the conversations that we're having at an industry level but, and also at a client level is about how we can guide people to future-proof uh, their businesses. And that's exactly that point, Alistair. So thank you very much for that. John, did you have something that you wanted to add into that? Yes, I mean, I really I really sort of relate to that thing about uh, the, the point that Alice was making about, you know, tell us what to do. We don't want to make uh, useless investments. The only problem is I, I don't think we genuinely know what is going to, to work. You know, John, uh, John Kerry said, that uh, half the technologies we need for net zero don't exist yet. And I think that that is the reality. And certainty would be nice. Uh, crystal ball would be nice, but we don't have it. So there, there is also, in reality, a need to to hedge, to keep options open, and to just, just face up that it, it's not that people are not being told what's going on because the government can't make up its mind. The technical information we need to underpin that decision isn't there and it won't be there for a while and it's a very difficult balance between making progress and locking into options which may turn out not to be the uh, the ones that eventually uh, get deployed turn out to be the best way in large quantities it's just a genuine difficulty it's really interesting and um, did you have some follow-up on on that point as well yeah it's, it's really just a <laughs> I agree with what Alistair and John have said, um, which is, you don't normally get this in a podcast. It's quite boring yeah. if everyone agrees with each other. Um, yeah. well, the, but, the, um, the listeners, they can't see that we've all just been nodding at each other. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think, you know, that 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 point that John just made, that's where the government needs to intervene. They need to be underwriting some of this innovation and investment. And, and to a degree, they are doing that in some sectors, um, but not all. Um, I also went into it's a, something that 
happened to me recently. I was on a, a sort of working group um, just looking at decarbonizing Wales as a, for want of a better term, by 2050 and hitting net zero. And there was a general consensus on the call that net zero has become such a nebulous term that it's thrown around by so many people now and nobody really knows, which echoing what John said, how we get there or what we do. There's lots of ideas floating around, but there's no sort of concrete trajectory or plan. Um, and I, I, I do think that's missing. Um, and hopefully some work can be done to, to get a better idea. Um, there will be a need to shift as we go because as I think the, the quote that John said is completely right. We haven't invented half the stuff we need yet to get to net zero. Um, but I, I think some some kind of certainty, I mean, I see it in my market in terms of from solar, for instance, you know, there was never any large scale solar. Everybody kept things to 49.9 megawatts. And then suddenly one decision goes through the system down in Kent for a 300 megawatt solar project. And bang, you look on the planning inspector's website, there's now 12 of them all looking. I think the biggest one is 600 megawatts. So it, it's kind of that one decision gave the market the certainty it needed and they all pushed the green button to go. Um, and I think, you know, without that certainty is critical, um, whether it's certainty from a policy or a, or a direction of travel or certainty from a, you know, underwriting and investment and risk perspective, we, we, we have to have that to move forward. Finally, John. Yeah. I, I don't know whether the other participants would agree or not, but I see direct air capture as being a, a disruptive input to all of this in the sense that if you can pull CO2 out of the air in quantity, then we've got at least one company looking at, well, one, one group of companies, including some big players like uh, Oxy Petroleum, looking at pulling a million tons a year of CO2 out of the air uh, in a plant that could be replicated you know, many, many times over. So if you can do that, it might be costly, start out with. But basically, you can say to people, you know, do what you want, particularly if it's something frivolous, like flying long distance to have a holiday. You don't need to do that. You're choosing to do it. You're having fun doing it. Well, if you want to have fun doing it, you can pay a couple hundred pounds a ton to pull the CO2 out of the air. You don't have to. You don't have to pay that because you don't have to, you don't have to do that activity. And you can apply that to a lot of things. Most things we do actually are frivolous and they, they, they're done for fun. And I think if you if you say that, you know, look, do what you like, pull the CO2 out of the air. It's not offsetting. It's just indirect capture. It's, it's absolutely robust as far as the climate's concerned. And we're not making you do that. You're making yourself do it, but we're not allowing you to leave that CO2 in the air, which effectively what you're doing is leaving it for this period of net negative emissions post-2050. That's, that's all that you're doing. You're just saying, I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to bother pulling it out there. I'm going to have my fun, throw the sewage in the street. Uh, and leave it for somebody else to sort out. You know, say, no, you true. can do that. And then, and then I think a lot of other things will happen because, of course, people will look for alternatives and they'll look for cheaper ways. But I do think that, that getting this ability to just say, you're, you're not sorting it out because you're a cheapskate who won't, won't pay for having fun, the actual going rate, will make a difference. And I, I'd be very interested to see you know, then how much people will go for alternative sources of energy and things like that when they when they actually have to face up to the true cost of, of putting CO2 in the atmosphere. Thank you very much, John. So I think we're coming to the end of the, the podcast. So to close, if there is just one key point that you would like listeners to take away with them today um, from today's podcast, what would that be? So if I come to Alistair first. 
Yeah, so obviously I come back to this this topic of electricity and, and my key point is um, that it's changing, that um, we've been used to the electricity coming in the wall and this cable and we just use it without thinking about it. But um, we are all, as individuals as well as businesses, going to have to become a lot more aware of um, our electricity and how we use it and when we use it and the consequences of using it. Um, you know, any EV driver will already have a much better understanding of what a kilowatt hour is and what the impact of using a higher power charger is for how long it takes them to charge their car up. Um, and we're just going to think a lot more about our electricity. Um, so don't get left behind. Ben, what would you, what would you have as your key takeaway? For me, it's it, it comes back to the behaviour point. Um, I think you know the, this the scale of the challenge ahead of us needs to be realised. But it, it's linked into what Alistair said. As as individuals, we have a responsibility to start looking at right. Well, do I really need to fly to the other side of the world on holiday once a year? We need to change our behaviour. Um, and I think I think that would be my my biggest point. And I, I think from for what John was saying, I think that's a brilliant idea to, to add to the cost of air travel, to pay for the carbon to be taken out of the atmosphere. Um, it's not going to be very popular with British Airways or Qantas, but um, I, I imagine you'd hit people in the pocket, you'll definitely see a result. But yeah, my, my takeaway is just, we, it's it's just, it's individual responsibility as, as well as industry and, and the government. And John? Yeah, I think it's just, just the point that don't assume that we know what's needed at the moment. I mean, we know what net zero is. We know essentially how to do it, um, but the details are still very, very much to be determined. And in as much as we can't put infrastructure in quickly, we can't necessarily invent everything quickly either. It takes time. Uh, so even, even in a war situation, it takes time. It's a really good way of looking at it. So as we move into a period then of transition um, um, and we try to have security of supply um, and security of innovation um, if the, the methods that we need aren't even invented yet and um, to, to move to net zero. Um, I think that there are um, there's a bumpy road ahead for us all um, and certainly a lot of volatility that hopefully we'll be able to guide our clients and our consumers but also the way that we guide the country to 2050 and beyond, as John has, has quite rightly pointed out, um, will certainly be key. So thank you to um, John Gibbons, Alistair Morris and Ben Lewis um, for taking time out of your busy working day today to um, help us and contribute to this podcast. And that's it. Thanks for listening to the Owen Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then please do join us for our next episode. Thank you.